Can we say a word of prayer? Our Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your strength. Thank you for gathering us together once again before your throne. We say may your name be highly exalted in Jesus' name. Father, we pray that as we go into your word, that you speak to us by yourself in Jesus' name. Let us not um, listen to this with ears of the flesh, but let's listen to this with the heart of us, of the spirit in Jesus' name. Let your spirit saturate us and let us get what we want and what we need from today's service. For it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, welcome to another day where we will be examining the book of Romans. Today is a very special day because after today we will be taking a pause on the book of Romans. to learn some other things that God has in store for us. But even as we take a brief break from this book, I'm very encouraged by the notes that we are ending on. And the reason I'm encouraged by the notes that we are ending on is because there's a lot for us to unpack today. Last two weeks, we looked at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And the title of the message that day was Worship the Body. So worship hyphen the body. And we looked at just the first verse, which says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And we spent time examining exactly what all these words and all these phrases meant or mean for us today. Today we're going to be looking at just verse 2, Romans 12, 2, which says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Amen. The title of today's teaching is Worship the Mind. Worship hyphen the mind. So while we looked at what it means for us to worship God with our bodies last two weeks, today we're going to be looking at what it means to worship God with our minds and what Paul is really saying to the church in this verse. And in the manual, I have two major subcategories of points that I'm going to be speaking about today. But out of those two subcategories, we're going to be looking at different things. And the first subcategory is the fact that there is no middle ground for the believer. There is no middle ground for the believer. Even from reading it as it is, we see that Paul has presented the believer with two options that are very contrasting. He said, and be ye not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
if you take that sentence alone, essentially what he's saying is you can't be both, right? You can't be both. You can't be conformed to this world and at the same time be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Even if you don't understand in depth exactly what he means or what he's trying to say, from basic sentence structure and basic understanding of English language, you can tell that what he's saying is, if you're doing option A, you can't possibly be doing option B. But for us to properly understand these two sides, we just need to know exactly what two words mean in this verse. And I chose those two words because I think those are the words that these verses lynch, they are the linchpins rather that hold this verse together, these two sections of this verse together. The first is the word conformed and the second is the word renewal. Now, the word conformed is derived from a Greek word which means or which is pronounced synchematizo. And it's a weird word that I would not attempt to pronounce twice because it took me some time to actually try to pronounce it once. Uh, but what it means, and you can look at your manuals, and if you're watching or listening to this, um, if you're listening to this on Google Podcasts, you can download the manual because it's attached to the message. You would find that it means to become like-shaped or to assimilate one's self to. So that word conformed means to become like-shaped or to assimilate one's self to. If you want to look at an English word that sort of describes this, it's the word that words like synchronize comes from. When people are saying stuff like, oh, two people are in sync. Oh, let's synchronize our watches. It means that somebody's watch is going to have to adjust to another person's watch. Because for two people to synchronize their watches, what has to happen essentially is that somebody has to change his time slightly or maybe even heavily to match the time of what another person. So that's what the word comes from, or that's the word rather that we derive some of these English words from. Uh, I read a lot of comics and in X-Men comics, there's a mutant called Sink. And his thing is, he doesn't have any ability of his own. But when he's in close proximity with somebody else that has an ability, he has an aura that, that basically would sync up with that person so he'll be able to use that person's ability. And that's why he's called Sync, because he has to synchronize with that person. Um, 
All of these I'm saying just to explain what this word means. Now, the only other passage in the New Testament that has this word used in this context is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. And I want us to go there. And 1 Peter 1.14 says, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. The word there that is used is fashioning. In Romans, it's used conformed. In 1 Peter, it's fashioning. But in the Greek, it's the same word. So essentially, this tells us some things about the believer. The first thing he tells you about the believer is that a believer who is doing this is not in his true state, right or wrong, right. So when, when Paul says, do not conform yourselves to this world, what he is saying is that being conformed to this world is no longer the natural state of a believer. Because if the believer has to essentially become like-shaped or has to assimilate himself to this world, what that means is that he has his own shape, right? It means that he has been made into something different from what he is conforming himself to. So this communicates that being conformed to this world or rather, being like this world is no longer the natural state of the believer. Something has happened in his life. Something has happened to the believer that has caused him to be different. And Paul has already spoken about these in previous chapters. What has happened is he has become renewed. He has become regenerated. He's a new man now. Something has changed. Right? But that also reminds us that there is a shape of the world. So if we're using the literal translation of this word, it means that the word has its particular shape or properties. There are things that define what the world is. The world has beliefs, practices, systems, a way of thinking that is not or that no longer aligns with the current state of the believer. That's the second thing that it tells us. But the third thing that it tells us is that a believer who is in this state is living below his true nature. A believer who is conformed to this world is living below his true nature. And it's fascinating that the examples that are coming to my mind are examples from, I don't know, media or cartoons or anime. 
but essentially there's a concept in almost every form of media whether it's anime or cartoons or entertainment media that has to do with fantasy or science fiction there's always a form of power dampening that exists power dampening or in simple terms just simply means that there's a character with a certain ability right but because of some certain conditions that character cannot use those abilities or the character cannot use those abilities to its full potential it exists in many forms of media if you've read stories you'll find it there if you watched any of the marvel or dc movies you probably will recognize this concept in it where essentially there's somebody who in his natural state is supposed to have some certain properties or characteristics but because of the introduction of a certain element that person now is below himself or herself but superman is kryptonite so if you bring kryptonite to superman he becomes like a human being depending on the type of kryptonite he might even become weaker than a normal human being what paul is saying is this a believer in the state of conformation has reduced himself because what he or she is doing is not a true reflection of what or who rather he or she has now become and that's why it's important to understand that particular word conform so the second word we're going to look at is the word called renew or renewal rather and to renew in simple english simply means to make new and in this text that word renewal is also derived from a greek word anakinosis and essentially what it's depicting is a continuous and unending process of making something new so when he says do not become conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind it depicts a continual and unending process of what of making you new that your mind would continually be what renewed and that renewal will cause transformation but for us to truly understand this incidentally we also have just one more passage in the entirety of the new testament that has this word and it's in the book of titus chapter 3 verse 5 and i want us to also open it Titus 3.5 says, I'll read from verse 4. But after that, the kindness and the love of God and Savior, love of God and Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of what? The Holy Ghost 
the renewing of the Holy Ghost, that word renewing is the only other place in the entirety of the New Testament that this word appears in the same way. Which should at the very least teach you that the primary person responsible for renewing your mind is the Holy Spirit. He does it through diverse means. He does it through diverse ways. But the primary person responsible for the renewal of your mind is the Holy Spirit. And the reason why you even qualify for the renewal of the mind is because you have been saved by the washing of regeneration. That came first. The blood of Jesus made you clean and you experienced regeneration. It's the same word that you have. That word regeneration is the same word that you have in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 where Paul was speaking and he said, you had he quickened. You were dead. Now you are alive. You've experienced regeneration. And it's because you've experienced regeneration that you can now have renewal by the Holy Ghost. I want to read an excerpt from a book called God's Way of Reconciliation by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I want to read it because it, it relates so much with what we are speaking about today. Just to show us that there's no middle ground. Just hold on, I'll find it. Okay, I'll read it. I read, so the name of the book is God's Way of Reconciliation. I'm reading from page 107, just in case you want to find it by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It says, what is quickening? Quickening is regeneration and nothing else. When the apostle says here, you had he quickened, he means you he has regenerated. He has given you new life. You have been born again. You have been created anew. You have become partakers of the divine nature. What is regeneration? I cannot think of a better definition than this. Regeneration is an act of God by which the principle of new life is implanted in man and the governing disposition of the soul is made holy. I repeat that. Regeneration is an act of God by which the principle of new life is implanted in man and the governing disposition of the soul is made holy. He's going to explain that, but it's very powerful. He says that is regeneration. It means that God, by his mighty action, puts a new disposition into my soul, into your soul. Notice I say disposition, not faculties. What man in sin needs is not new faculties. What he needs is a new disposition. 
What is the difference, you ask, between faculties and disposition? It is something like this. The disposition is that which determines the bent and the use of the faculties. The disposition is that which governs and organizes the use of the faculties, which makes one man a musician and another a poet and another something else. So the difference between the sinner and the Christian, the unbeliever and the believer, is not that the believer, the Christian, has certain faculties which the other man lacks. No. What happens is that this new disposition given to the Christian directs his faculties in an entirely different way. He is not given a new brain. He is not given a new intelligence or anything else. He has always had these. They are his servants. They are his instruments, his members, as Paul calls them in the sixth chapter of Romans. What is new is a new bent, a new disposition. He has turned in a different direction. There is a new power working in him and guiding his faculties. That is what makes a man a Christian. There is a new principle of life in him and there is a new disposition. And it affects the whole man. It affects the mind. It affects the heart. It affects his will. It is not something that happens to man. It is something that happens to man instantaneously, not gradually. Birth is sudden. Birth is instantaneous. It's not a gradual process. There was the man at one moment dead, and the next moment he is alive. He has been quickened. The disposition, this principle of life has come into him. And obviously it is something that happens in our subconscious. Our Lord makes that quite plain to Nicodemus in that famous statement, The wind bloweth and it listeth. Thou heareth the sound thereof, but canst tell where he comes and where it goes. So is everyone born of the Spirit. That's John 3. It's a secret. It is elusive. One does not understand it, and one cannot explain it fully. All one knows is that it has happened. Once I was blind, now I see. I do not understand. I cannot explain it psychologically or anatomically or in any other way. All I know is I was blind, I could not see, and now I am able to see. I was dead, and now I am alive. It's a secret, it is mysterious, it is miraculous, it is marvelous, it is incomprehensible, but I know the effects, and I appreciate the results. I am aware that it has taken place. I'll stop there. Now, the reason I read such a long passage, and it's a beautiful book, because he goes on to talk about the place of your work. Do you, you get? He goes on to talk about the place of the fact that, yes, you still have things to do, like down the line, but you should realize that the difference between you and someone who doesn't know Jesus is not the fact that you decided to turn a new leaf and started to be better or do better. The difference between you and someone who is not a Christian is first what has been done 
for you. That is the foundation of the Christian life and existence. What has been done for you is Christianity. What you do later on as you grow is a different story. Do we understand? Christianity is first what has been done for you. God did this one for you. He put in you a new disposition. He put in you the capacity to want holy things that your soul would desire holiness. So when a Christian is struggling with actions of unholiness or struggling with actions of in quote, sin or struggling with some things in their life that might not be right, it is a sign that they are Christian. Because if they were not Christian, that thing would not be a struggle. They would just keep living that way because that's their natural disposition. And that's the very huge difference between these two choices that Paul gives us. Because what it really means is a Christian who is conformed to this world, this further proves that that Christian is truly living below his true potential because his disposition has changed. God has done something for him or her that gives him the ability to walk or move in a different direction. But for some reason or the other, he or she is not walking in that direction. So Paul gives the solution in that the solution is the transformation that comes from the renewing of your mind through the Holy Spirit. So the leading of the Holy Spirit is the primary way that we can, in practical terms, achieve what God has already done for us as a standard. So for us to follow this new bent that we have, we need to listen to the Holy Spirit. We need to listen to him. And I wrote down the ways he speaks to us. He speaks to us through his word, the, the word of God, first off. It speaks to us through the inner witness. And there's so many involved in the inner witness. The inner witness can be a quickening. A quickening essentially is the Holy Spirit staring you in a particular direction with a sense of urgency. It can be a leading, which is the Holy Spirit which is also the Holy Spirit stirring you in a particular direction without the urgency though. But just leading you. It can be a check in your spirit. And a checking is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit essentially telling you not to make a particular decision. So a check in your spirit is a negative. It's you're about to do the wrong thing and he's like, no, 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 no. There's the inward voice as well. Where the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart. And there are other vehicles. There's, prof- there's prophecy, there's dreams, there's visions. But one of the reasons why I wrote those last is because the church has gotten to a point that they ignore God's word 
They ignore the inner witness. They ignore the inner voice and they are dependent on these externalities for someone to prophesy over their life or for visions and dreams before they can hear God lead them through his spirit. And anybody who is overly dependent on these things can never live a life of renewal or transformation. Because you have to nurture the relationship with the Holy Spirit and let him lead you. That's the only way you will live constantly renewed. Amen. And you'd be surprised the kind of things that the Holy Spirit cares about. So about two weeks ago, uh, I was sent. I just I was sent out to go and get um, a boniki, a boniki the balm. Apparently, they've looked for it, looked for it, looked for it. They couldn't find it, so they sent me out. So I took a walk, and I checked. Usually, I'll check with malams, so they didn't have. I just gave up. I just took a walk, and I took a walk, and I just kept walking. And it got to a point that I wanted to call, and I wanted to call home and say I didn't, I didn't find. I haven't tried to call, but at the time I tried to call, nobody picked. So I just said a short prayer in my heart. I said, Holy Spirit, I need to find that money. I don't know where it is. And I got towards Akinode Market, and as I got there, like it was, I didn't plan to enter. Okay, this is where you are stopping. And when you reach here, you not find, turn around and trek back to where you're coming from. And as I prayed that prayer, I just found myself entering and I started walking down. And I can't still explain how I got to the place that had Aponiki. I was just being led. I just kept walking, my ears were plugged. And I got to a shop. I asked, Does, Do they have? He said, It doesn't have. And I came out of that shop. And I was about to walk further, and I got a leading to just look to the other side of the road. And I turned, and I crossed, and I got to a random shop. And I just asked, does she have? She said she has, that that's her last one. And I bought it, and I went back home. I was very fascinating. You know, the thing is, we don't just involve him in some things that we think are, you know, I think it's just trivial. So you don't involve him. And he too be looking at you. Because you didn't call him inside the matter. He's there. Always. Through his word. He would lead you. He would cause transformation to come to your mind. Through the things that you take in through the things that he keeps out. That is when you will be able to fulfill the true potential of this new disposition that you have towards holiness. Because without him, yes, you can. Yes, the real you does not have a nature of sin anymore. The real you wants to serve God. The you, the true Billy, the true call your name. Because you've received Jesus and you've accepted him into your heart. You, have, you want nothing to do with those things of the world. That's your new disposition. That's the hard cry of your soul. But if your mind is not renewed, it will remain potential. 
you would never actually actualize it. That's the dividing line. And that's the reason why the believer has no middle ground. And that's what Paul is saying here. Second thing I want to speak about is man's interaction with God's will. Man's what? Interaction with God's will. And as I close this, I close this with so much excitement because preparing for this particular teaching revealed things to me that I had never learned before. And I love learning new things. And I read the second part, which says that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's the last part of this verse. So essentially, he's saying you should what? Your mind should be transformed so that you'll be able to prove the good and the perfect and the acceptable will of God. And that's where this title is from, which is Man's Interaction with God's Will. So the first thing that we learn is that the primary interaction that we have to God's will is to prove it. It's not to question it. It's not to question it. It's not to sit and wonder about it. It's to prove it. And there are some things that are contained in proving. But before I get into those things, you see, in the New Testament, there are two major words that are used to describe prove. Two Greek words. There's perazo and there's dokimazo. Forget the translation or the pronunciation rather. You're not here to learn Greek. I'll just explain to you what they mean. But there are two words. Now, the range of words you would find in scripture that will fall into either of these two is test or trial or tempt or examine or discern. These are the words you would find in English. It's a long range. But in Greek, usually, you'll find two words, perazo or dokimazo. I'll start with perazo. Perazo you would find usually associated with test or trial or tempt, temptation. But you see, the primary thing about perazo is this, is that it can either have a good or a bad outcome. It really depends on the context in which it is used. So for example, when Jesus was being tempted by Satan, that's a bad outcome because if, if Jesus falls for that temptation, it's, it's a problem for all of us. But that word was used there. The tempter came to him to tempt him in Matthew 4, 7. Another example is Acts chapter 5, verse 9, where you see the story of Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to Peter. And Peter said, why have you decided to test the Holy Spirit? That's what he said to them. He used the word test. But obviously, the outcome wasn't good. So those are bad outcomes. 
that's very, very different from when James is speaking to us and admonishing us in James chapter 1 when he says, count it all joy when you go through trials, various tests or trials. In that context, it's what? It's a good outcome. Let's actually go to James 1 so I can show you something interesting. James 1. James 1. 12. So James 1. 12 says, 12 and 13. It says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord have promised to them that love him. So you see, for when he is tried, that tried is that same word, and it's for a good outcome. Still pay razo. But let's go to verse, verse 13. It says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempted he any man. It's still that same word, perazo, that is used when it says, let no man say he is tempted of God, for God cannot tempt. But in verse 13, it's now used for a negative outcome. Two verses that stand side by side, 12 and 13. But in the first one, it's used to determine something that is positive. In the second, it's used to speak about something that is negative, but it's still the same Greek word that both are derived from. We understand that, yeah? Now, on the other hand, dokimazo is used, and you usually will find words like prove, sometimes test, sometimes examine, sometimes discern. And dokimazo is used every time and only when the outcome is guaranteed to be good. That's the only time it is used. So when you see that word, there is a guarantee that the outcome of whatever that thing is, that test or that proving, is definitely something that is good that the outcome for the people involved would be good and that is the word that is used in this particular verse before i explain fully i'm going to show you another verse where this same word is used and that's in first corinthians chapter 3 verse 13. Corinthians 3.13 It says, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And, that, and other versions will say the fire shall test every man's work of what sort it is. This verse is speak, basically speaking about the judgment seat of Christ when all believers shall stand before Jesus to have their works tried or tested with fire. And it's the same word that is used, dokimazo. What does that mean? The judgment seat of Christ has no negative outcome. It doesn't. Because when you're before him, you're already admitted into his kingdom. It means you've won. 
it means you've already heard, welcome my good and faithful servant. Because you will not even be at that judgment seat if you've not heard, welcome my good and faithful servant. Because this is for those who are laborers in his vineyard. This judgment is only to determine what your reward will be. But definitely there will be a reward. So there's no negative outcome. All outcomes are positive. I know sometimes, like, I hear some very, very interesting things about the judgment seat of Christ. Or how, you know, some people will say some very funny things about, oh, yeah, do this so, so that when you get to heaven, your reward will be good. Do this so, so that when you get to heaven, your reward will be big. And sometimes those statements are kind of hilarious to me because it's called the judgment seat of Christ, not the judgment seat of whatever your name is. The person that determines the worth and the validity of the reward is Christ. No human being can stand here and say that he has the measuring stick of whatever it is would be the person, someone's reward in heaven. You can't. All we have is the instructions that he has given us and the things he told us to do. And as long as we submit ourselves to his will for us on an individual level, we are guaranteed that we will meet with him and we would have rewards but the, the nature or the volume or whatever other descriptive properties that you want to give to that reward is dependent on Jesus, not on you. No man can say that, oh yes, if, if you do this to this degree, that your reward in heaven will be. You're not Jesus. It's his judgment seat. What scripture just tells us is that every man's work will be made manifest and it will be tried but the trial here is a good outcome for everybody that is there because the fact that you got there is proof that what you've done works that are good the trial is to determine and it's Jesus' determination what reward he is going to give you for the work that you have done. It's not for you to worry yourself about here on earth. It's for you to focus on what he has said you should do. So in the same vein, what Paul is saying to the believers here is that the will of God, if we submit ourselves and listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit, that what it would result in is our lives proving God's will to be good. Proving God's will to be what? Acceptable. And proving God's will to be perfect. Because these three are the characteristics of God's will. God's will is the only will that is truly good. Because God's will for any individual is the only will that is guaranteed to give the best outcome to that individual. Even things that we think might be good for ourselves are not truly good because we don't know ourselves the way God knows us. And God's will is the only will that can be said to be truly acceptable. 
And we talked about this, 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 this concept of being acceptable when we talked about predestination. And we talked about the fact that predestination, one of the things that he teaches us is that there is a right way. And that right way has existed even before this world existed because God is the source of everything that was created. And we talked about that at length when, we, when we're dealing with that chapter. So it should be no surprise that there is an acceptable will. And his will is the only one that is acceptable. But the third thing about his will is that his will is perfect. There is nothing wrong with it. But it's not enough, right, for us simply to just know it in theory. Hmm? It's not enough to know it in theory. It's not enough to teach ourselves and say, oh yes, God's will is good. God's will is acceptable. It's perfect. The only way we would experience those things is if we prove it. So if you're in class, for example, and those that did sciences will know this a lot, and your lecturer asks you to prove something, what he's telling you to, let's say he puts a formula on the board and he's telling you to prove that formula. <clears throat> Maybe prove the value of pi. What it's telling you is this. The value of pi is a standard figure. It cannot change. Or it says you should prove the quadratic formula. The quadratic formula is a standard figure that does not change. When you're asked to prove something, prove that the formula for water is H2O, two hydrogen atoms and one atom of oxygen, that would be the formula for water till this world finishes. It means that there's already something standard that is established. What you're doing is you're now working out what makes that thing what it is, right? So if you're asked to prove a formula, essentially, and they call you in class, you're have to get up and carry maca or carry chalk when I, was in, when I was younger. And you basically want to start deriving and deriving and deriving and deriving. You are working it out, but you're not working to a result that you don't know. You are working to something that you already know because that thing is standard. And it's the same thing for our lives. That God's will for every one of us here is perfect, it's good. And it's acceptable. So essentially what Paul is saying is that he can give us this guarantee of the outcome. That what God's will for my life is, is good, is perfect, is acceptable. But I will not get there. I have to prove it. I have to prove it through actually living that life. But not just living that life, but living it by what? The renewal of my mind. Through the Holy Spirit that brings about transformation. That if I do that, what will happen is, as I live my life on a day-to-day, every day of my life will be proof that God's will is good, it's acceptable, and it is perfect for me. And that's why I said at the beginning, 
that man's interaction, only interaction with God's will, is to prove it. We have nothing else to do with it. As it pertains to our lives, that's the only interaction we have. That's the only thing that we have to do. Prove it with the help of the Holy Spirit. Because the outcome is already determined. We can already tell that these are the things that are contained in the will of God. And this is our ultimate form of worship. So while our ultimate form of worship with our bodies arise was to make sure that we don't pick ourselves up from the altar and we let the Holy Spirit purge us and we'll we'll soak ourselves in God's presence. The ultimate form of worship of our minds is to allow him to transform our minds through the renewal of the Spirit so that our lives will become proof of the goodness and the perfection and the acceptability of the will of God. And there's no higher form of worship that we can give him. Shall we rise up?